Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. Some people live in a world where they believe that God controls everything that happens. Even the horrible things, they would say God allowed it and has a purpose and is going to bring something good from it. That is the theology of the American public. You, every American, it comes in the water, it comes in the air we breathe. Everyone you know, no matter whether they're an atheist or an agnostic or whatever they are, they will believe this, and that is that somehow God is controlling everything. So when bad things happen, the question is, how could a good God let something like this happen? How could, how could a good God let a world like this? I can't believe in a God that would have so much evil and suffering in a world. Because after all, he's like Geppetto up there pulling the strings and causing everything that happens. He, all is scripted, isn't it? Like a great stage with Shakespeare. And everything that everybody says and does has been planned by some mastermind in heaven. Hasn't it? Well, that's the American theology, isn't it? That's what your friends and neighbors and family believe fundamentally, don't they? Come on. Yeah, they do. And that's why when any tragedy happens, people get angry at God. When any tragedy happens, people are going, how could there be such evil? There's this great struggle in the heart. Where did it come from? We're going to find out. Hallelujah. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we ask you to open the word and feed us. We love the bread of, of the word of God. And we ask you, Lord, to grace me so that we can hear your voice and not mine. In Jesus' name, amen. People who have a problem with the existence of evil are people who believe a particular philosophical model of the sovereignty of God. They believe that for God to be God, he must control everything that takes place. You've heard this maybe. If God is, either God is in control of everything or God is in control of nothing. And so you, again, that, by the way, there's just something about, and forgive me for the slur, but there is a male philosophical thing that goes on where men need to reduce the thing to the absolutes, it seems like, to the absurd. It's, um, and, and so either God controls every little detail or he doesn't control anything at all. And there's a whole group of folks that go, yeah, that makes sense to me. And, and it doesn't make sense. It isn't, well, I'll go on. Calm down. So when something evil happens, they assume he has a higher all-encompassing plan that is secretly in control and is secretly in control of every event. But in order to believe this, they must be unwilling to accept the testimony of the Bible or the evidence all around us that there is a genuine and pervasive spiritual battle taking place. The early Christians understood they were called to bring the kingdom of God into a world under siege from the kingdom of Satan. When bad things happened, they were not surprised, nor did they blame God or grow angry at him. They knew that their own Lord had suffered at the hands of these same evil forces. So how could they expect not to suffer as well? They too had been called into this battle, and God had armed them and was there to help them. 
There are a few places in the Bible where the spiritual battle with Satan is more exposed than in Revelation chapter 12. As we read through this chapter, we will learn some important principles about the universe in which we live and why God calls us to be soldiers in his army. And now I trust you are at somewhere around Revelation chapter 12. We are going through the book of Revelation. I want to review a little bit, just catch you up for a moment. In chapter 5, we saw the Ancient of Days, God the Father, sitting on his throne with a, with a scroll in his hand, and it had seven seals down its outer edge. As each one of those seals was broken, something happened. Who, who recalls what happened when it, the breaking of each of the seals? Each broken seal released the kingdom of the Antichrist. Got it? That's what you see happening. The seals release the Antichrist. So out he goes, causing his havoc as his kingdom is built. Then we went through the trumpets. And we actually, the seventh trumpet is actually there in 11, chapter 11, verse 15. That's the, we're coming now. We've come, this, and what we'll see today is part of the end of the trumpets. The trumpet season is over. What is, what is the trumpet? Well, the trumpets were there to warn the world to repent. That's why they were trumpets. They warned the world, the end is drawing near, repent. And we saw there would be natural disasters. In some cases, God allowed um, the demonic uh, hordes to just cover the earth and bring torment and then death. But always a partial thing. And the point was always that they might repent and turn to God. At the seventh trumpet, you come to the midpoint of the final seven years. There is... In earth's history, there will be, Daniel talks of these sevens, and we are in the final seven-year period, and it's no question that that's what it is. I mean, the Bible will literally count it down to days. There is a final seven-year period, three and a half years and three and a half years. What we're going to see today marks the center point. This is why it changes. We're going to see what happens that changes things at that center point. Chapter 12 shows us now the spiritual world that's going on behind the events on earth. There is a war in heaven. The Bible does not teach that God is morally responsible for everything that occurs. It says that he has given humans and angels the freedom to choose to obey or disobey him for a limited season of time. They're coming into this season, but it isn't there yet. Because of this, we are in a massive spiritual battle which God will ultimately win. God has given freedom. How could a good God create a world full of evil? Did God create evil? He did not create evil. God gave freedom. And what we're going to see today is not only does he give freedom to human beings, but he has given freedom to the very angels he created for his own service. It is indisputably present in the chapter we're going to see. Imagine that. God even gave freedom to the angels. What's he doing? Why did he do this? In order to love, you must be able to not love. Love is a gift or it is nothing at all. In order to obey, you must be able to choose to obey or to not obey. The, 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 the holiness of it, the honor of obedience, is the choice to obey, 
not simply that you have a robot who did what you told. No one is particularly impressed that a robot did what it was told to do. It had no choice. What's glorious is when a free agent chooses, recognizes that which is right and pure, and chooses to obey, even at the cost of a sacrifice. God has given freedom because it is the only way possible. There is no other alternative for his creatures to love him and to obey him. And that's what he wants. This God of ours is, 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 is not a control freak. He wants to be loved. He wants to relate to us as, as, as persons. He does not want a world full of robots. And so to have that happen, he had to give freedom. And in giving freedom, people were allowed to choose to disobey him. And since his will is always that which is perfectly loving, anything else is evil. Anything other than his will brings death and havoc. You cannot blame God for what's going on in this world. You cannot blame God for the evil of your own choices and the damage you've done. Or the damage that other people's evil choices have done to you. Why did he give us this freedom? It was the only way possible to have sons and daughters, a race of people who are created in the image of his beloved son. And that is the goal of all of this. That there will be an entire, and there will be someday like a sea of people, billions of people who are in the image of his beloved son because they love his son and have chosen to obey his son freely. Do you understand? That's heaven. So there'll be people worshiping him because they want to and they love him, not because they've been wound up and programmed. All right, that's where. So we're living in a war here because as long as he has allowed this to take place, there's a battle on and some, even some of the angels have chosen to disobey. Now, verse 1, where I'm going to quickly kind of summarize at least part of chapter 12. Get a, get a feel here. And again, I'll explain some of the things more thoroughly another time. A great sign appeared, verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven, and a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Those symbols are indisputably the symbols of Israel. They come out of Genesis chapter 37, verse 9 where Joseph has the dream, and those are exactly the symbols he sees. So who's, who's, the, great, who's the woman? She's, it's Israel. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. Israel has one more spiritual child to bear. Now you say, wait a minute, isn't the child we bear, isn't this a, isn't this a, a symbolic explanation of, of, of Jesus? No, I don't believe it is. Indeed, Israel has given us our Messiah and Savior. And given birth. Israel has also given birth to the church. It is salvation is from the Jews, says Jesus. But what we're seeing here is not, and I'll, I'll show you, is not, I think, an explanation or some symbolic representation of just Jesus being born. Something else is happening. John has brought us to the midpoint of the tribulation, and Israel is in pain to give birth to another child. What is it? Verse 3. <clears throat> And then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon. Who's that? Yes, no mystery. And yet, there's something strange about it. It's because the red dragon never has these other things added to him, except here it does. The red dragon having seven heads, 
ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. Those, those seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns, those are the symbol of the Antichrist and of his kingdom. And so what you have here now, and, and it is that, that Satan and the, and the Antichrist, or the beast, have been merged. They have become one, and indeed, that is what happens. I give you the reference, thir- chapter 13, verse 1. You can see those exact symbols, and they are the symbols of the beast, of the Antichrist and his kingdom, not of just Satan himself. So something remarkable has happened. The Satan is now in control, complete control, of the Antichrist kingdom, and I'll show you what that will be. Verse 4, his tail... This, this uh, dragon's tail, Satan's tail, swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. The stars are frequently uh, a poetic reference to angels, and that's what it means here. We are being told that Lucifer, who was an archangel who fell, has somehow had influence and has drawn a third of the angels to follow him in his rebellion. And he brings them down to earth with him. We'll see how he gets to earth later. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth. He wants to kill this, new, this child that's going to be born. And when she gave birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. Wants to destroy it instantly. And she gave birth to a son, a male child. You say, well, that's got to be Jesus, isn't it? Well, certainly Israel did give birth to that. To him, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. You say, okay, there it is. Who else rules the nations with a rod of iron? I'm glad you asked. Now I'm going to show you. Would you turn back to chapter 2 of the book of Revelation? When I'm done, you're going to go, how does he know this stuff? (laughs) Jesus, of course, is the one who finally rules the nations with the rod of iron. But he's not alone in the process. Look at this. This is the message to to Thyatira. And Jesus is the one doing the talking. I'd like you to start at verse 26. He who overcomes. Who who is he talking? Who's he talking to? He's talking to the church. And he says, he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end. To him I will give authority over the nations. To who? To him who overcomes. Are you following that? Jesus says he who has been given this of the Father will give it to his followers, his overcomers. Now hang on, it keeps going. And he shall rule them, the nations, with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken. Jesus says that that authority which is mine I will give to the overcomers, those who follow me. All right? Now go back then and to chapter 12. And so this Israel gives birth to another son. Who is this? Who will rule the nations with a rod of iron, as will all the true church of Jesus Christ. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. You say, there it is, the ascension. All right, just a minute. Jesus did not ascend into heaven to escape the devil. Because that's the picture here, isn't it? You got this big old dragon waiting for this baby to be born and he's going to gobble it and the, and the thing goes out of, and goes up into heaven. Jesus did not escape into heaven. G- when Jesus was in his ministry, he defeated the devil. 
He broke his power. Christ has already broken the power of the devil. When he ascended into heaven, he did it when he felt like it. And he, he rose gloriously into the sky after having already broken the back of the devil. Now I want to show you something here. This is really important. In, all through the New Testament, in the Greek, there's a preposition. And you see, believe, you hear it translated, believe on Jesus, believe in Jesus. But the actual preposition is, into Believe into Jesus. And I think it's there for a clear reason. Here's what happens when you believe, when you, when you, when you come to Christ. Let's, let's pretend, you've seen this before, some of you, but this is you, and you've been on a diet. <laughs> Very thin. All right. And then the Bible is Jesus. This is really important. I want, this is, I'm going to give you sound theology. Now hang on. This is you. This is Christ. When you Repent and give your life to Jesus Christ. When you believe into Jesus, here's what happens. This is you. This is Jesus. When you believe into Jesus, this is what happens. You get put into Jesus like that. He surrounds you. He, you are completely enveloped in him. Now, here's the deal. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, where were you? Come on. You were in him. You died with Christ. This is Romans 6. You died with Christ. When, 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 when Christ uh, de uh, descended into hell, by the way, he didn't suffer the flames of hell. He went down and announced to them he'd beaten them. And, and, I mean, yeah. So when he did, where were you? When he rose from the dead and broke out, broke, and, and death could not hold him, but he, es he escaped its grip, where were you? When he rose into heaven and, is, and sat at the right hand of the Father, where are you? Doesn't Ephesians say that right now we are seated in heavenly places with Christ? That's what it means. You are, so when Christ, get this now, the, Christ in his death and resurrection has already defeated the devil. So that everyone who is in him has, joins him in his victory. And it's a done deal. Right now, you are already resurrected. You are already seated at the right hand of the Father. You have already escaped death. It is a done deal already because you rode inside of Christ as he went through his ministry. You got it? All right, so he didn't escape into heaven. It's not like this dragon's about to go, uh, and he goes, I'm out of here, and zooped up to heaven. But somebody did. Let's see who it is. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who was to rule all the nations, and was caught up to God on his throne. I believe what you're dealing with here is a last day's Jewish church. The Bible says that um, this will happen. Romans, Paul talks about it. We're told that Israel is beloved because of the fathers. God's will is always perfect. And so things are always being brought back to his original intention. You and I are being brought back to his original intention. Because uh, his will can't be changed in that sense because it was perfect and anything less is sin. So he will always bring things back to his original intention. And he will have, he will have Israel recognize his son. And glorify his son. That's what chapter 11 is about. Is this incredible process of, of evangelization. For the first three and a half years of the final seven. In which God goes and, and, and bears witness to Israel in an incredible way. 
of the realities of Jesus Christ. He is their Messiah. The Bible says in Zechariah that they will look upon him who they pierced and mourn. There will, be a, there will be a grieving as they recognize that he is truly, Jesus of Nazareth is the son of David. He's their promised Messiah. And I, and, and I think that's what the 144,000 is. Basically, that from every tribe of Israel, there will be a complete number, all true believers, all true Jews who love him will turn and believe in Jesus Christ. Now, the woman, is this is national Israel, fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God. Just like the, uh, the nation of Israel fled into the wilderness from Pharaoh. And there she would be nourished for how long? 1,260 days. How long is that? Three and a half years. I told you, it's broken literally down to days. This is the second three and a half years of that final seven period. Verse 7 and 8. War in heaven. And there was war in heaven. Michael, a great archangel, the one with a sword who defends God's people, and his angels waging war with the dragon, with Satan, with Lucifer, the fallen archangel. And the dragon and his angels waged war. Imagine that. There's war in heaven. Is this an act? Is this a scripted thing that God put on? Or is it genuine war? I think it's genuine war. But they were not strong enough. And there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon, verse 9, was thrown down. The serpent of old who's called the devil. And Satan who deceives the whole world. And he was thrown down to the earth. And his angels were thrown down with him. Now we're at the midpoint of the tribulation. This is what changes the entire atmosphere. Down comes Lucifer. You say, where's he been? Seems to me he's been messing with me all along. Who is it who's tempting and messing with you right now? Who's, who's been, where's been that source of, 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 of opposition? Because somebody has, haven't they? Of, it is the, the fallen angels. It's the demons. He is the king of, of, his own, of his own kingdom, as it were. Satan is not divine. God is everywhere all at once. Satan is not everywhere all at once. He's a spirit, a disembodied personality, but he does not exist everywhere all at once. Right now, we're going to find in verse 10 exactly where he is. He is a very busy guy. Look at verse 10. And I heard a loud voice, and the salvation and power and kingdom of our God and authority of his Christ have come. And notice what happens. For the accuser of our brethren, Satan, has been thrown down, thrown out of heaven, down to the earth. He who does what? Accuses them before our God day and night. Read that last line. He who accuses them before our God day and night. So where is he right now? He's apparently at the left hand of God. Jesus Christ is at the right hand. And he's somehow standing there, at least before him. And he's accusing you, how often? Constantly bringing accusation against you. And Christ, your Lord, is constantly declaring your atonement. There'll come a moment where God says, all right, I'm bringing all things into submission to me. You're out of here. And Michael and the boys take care of the situation. And we have a, we have a what, a bouncer? A heavenly bouncer. And, and Lucifer is ejected. And where does he show up? We're, we're told here. It says, verse 12, just let your eye go down to that for a minute. 
For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe, woe to the earth and to the sea, because the devil has come down to you having, a, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. Satan has, and his angels will be forcibly removed from heaven at the halfway point of the final seven years. He will personally arrive on the planet, oh great, along with all his demons. His accusations will stop. There'll be no more place for that. And he will set about going after this Jewish church in particular. When the dragon, verse 13, saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the child. He goes after Israel. And I'm going to stop there. I give you the rest of the notes. You can read them later. We've got a war here. We've got a real battle. I want to show you some of the principles that I, I find in that chapter. Number one. God has given both humans and angels the freedom to choose to obey or disobey him. This is the only reasonable explanation for the existence of sin and evil in a universe in which everything and everyone was created by a holy God. Number two, the devil and his kingdom of demons have, have been defeated by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, you'd think, wouldn't you? I'm just stepping away. You would think that he'd just give up. But oh no. The malevolence in him is he is going to... In fact, when knowing his time is short, he gets all the more aggressive. What will happen, by the way, when he comes down? He will personally possess the Antichrist. The Antichrist has been a horrible man. But he will not be demon-possessed. He will be satanically possessed. He will become the incarnation of Satan. He's nothing but a husk. And now Satan takes control of that last empire. And you have the final years of terror. The last three and a half years are horrific. And that's why he's, he's there. You'd think he'd give up, but he won't. He gets more malevolent. But his victory has not yet been fully applied to the world. Christ's victory. A spiritual battle still rages behind the events we see on earth. It's not a battle between equals. God is God. He's the only divine one. He's the maker and, and, and cause of all things. But yet the battle is real and so are the casualties. Number three, though the final destruction of Satan is certain, he is still active in opposing the will of God and he will continue to do so until the return of of Christ. He still blinds the minds of unbelievers, imposes injury and illness, tempts to sin, inspires false teaching, encourages idolatry, performs counterfeit miracles, provokes persecution, opposes the church using such things as discouragement, slander, and inciting divisions. He's still at work. However, we're not in a scripted play where every outcome is already decided. We're in a real battle with real casualties. So all believers are called, here's the point, all believers are called to be soldiers and bravely join the fight. In verse 11 of chapter 12 there, I want you to see how, how the Lord describes the uh, overcomers of that, of that moment. It's true of all overcomers. Verse 11. And they overcame him, how? Because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And what, what testimony is that? And they, 
It is that they declared Christ and they did not love their life even when faced with death. Did you see the heart of this people? I think he's particularly talking about the believers of that last season. It's those are the overcomers of that, in the face of that Antichrist kingdom. But it's true of every overcomer. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. How's that? Every time Satan makes accusation, they are covered with the blood of the Lamb. They are in Christ. Got it? That's true for us. That's how we overcome the accusations of the enemy. Right? We continually come back, and we will today, and just say, I'm in Christ. I am in Christ. It's his righteousness, his goodness that covers me. Say amen. Isn't that a good truth? Hallelujah. So they overcame him. They broke him. They broke his assaults by, by continually pleading the blood. And secondly, by their testimony. And this is the part I want to minister now. By the word of their testimony. What is that? They refused to renounce Christ. They declared Christ even though they would die for it. Why was that child caught up into heaven? I, it, it was either the rapture, but I don't think that's it. Because I'll show you in chapter 14, them in heaven beside Christ. I believe they die for their faith almost to the person. They're caught up because God snatches them up. Not a hair of their head should be lost, but it doesn't mean they aren't dying violently. They're with him. We're in a war. The American culture wants a Christianity which says, God will make me rich. God will help me in my times of trouble and not mess with me in between. My wife wants to leave me. I want to go to church, want to pray a few prayers, and I want God to turn her and straighten her head out. The doctor tells me it's malignant. I want to come in. I want you folks to pray for me. I might pray for myself a little bit, but I want you to do it, and then I want to be well. And of course, if I'm not healed instantly, it's God's fault, and these promises in the Bible aren't real. If, I have, if I'm fired, I want to be able to pray and have God give me a job. But I don't want him to mess with me in between. I want him to prosper me, take care of me, and leave me alone. That's the American religion right now, isn't it? And it's not comfortable to think we're in a battle. It's not pleasant, is it? It's discomforting to think, are you telling me that this is a battle and people are dying without Christ and, and serious casualties are taking place? There's an urgency it isn't just about getting my soul to heaven. Yeah, exactly what I'm telling you. You say, well, that's not comfortable. What do you want to do, believe a lie? I'm sorry, the world isn't comfortable. Reality isn't comfortable. But it's reality, and wouldn't you want to know the reality? Do you want to be deceived right to the end? Or do we want to recognize we're really in a war here? But folks, we aren't left without weapons. And we aren't, we aren't alone in this battle. We have powerful weapons. And that's the point. You and I have been called to be soldiers. You and I have been called to be brave. You and I have been called to step up and to, to be used of the Lord in this great battle. What are some of our weapons? I want you to see those because we've got mighty weapons. Some, number one, we, we've got the blood of the Lamb. We are constantly forgiven. Even when we fail, when we struggle, we are washed clean for our faith is in Christ Jesus. Say amen. amen. We have a fearless testimony. We, when, we, when we refuse to back down and, and, and become intimidated by the enemy, but we declare Christ openly, we, are a powerful, we powerfully overcome the enemy. Prayer. 
Prayer is huge. And we got to get a hold of this because, I mean, I'm so grateful for those that come Thursday night in prayer, but I wish there were more. And I trust you're going to somebody's prayer meeting because you cannot look at the world right now. The United States is in trouble. This is a dangerous moment. I'm not just being alarmist. It really is a bad moment. Can you see it? All right. Prayer changes history. Prayer changes people's lives. And you and I can lay hold of that. We must not be passive. We must not just be passengers on the train, kind of going along, feeling increasingly discouraged and allowing ourselves to pull inward into ourselves. We need to be soldiers in this battle. And prayer is one of our most powerful weapons. We need to be praying for the sick. And Satan is not responsible for all sickness, I don't think, but boy, he is for a lot of it, and there's clear references to it, and Jesus Christ gives the authority to his people to pray for the sick. Um, I had a testimony I was going to show you on a video. It came last night, and we weren't able to show it today, but I'll show it to you, I think, another time. We've had just some amazing healings. We had a doctor yesterday morning walk in and say, I know I've been part of a miracle, a surgeon. Healing, deliverance, when people are bound by the enemy. You and I have been given authority to tread underfoot serpents and scorpions. We, we, are the, we are the ones where we recognize who we are in Christ. The devil trembles. Do you understand that? We are not only just sort of against this horrible monster like, oh, we can do a little bit against him. We are armed and dangerous. When we get it. When we get it. That's why he keeps wanting to lure us back into passivity. Good works. You say, I'm not saved by good works. No, you're not, but you're saved unto good works. And you and I are to be caring for the poor, caring for the oppressed, seeking justice, acts of kindness, mercy. We don't do these missions and, 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 and feed the hungry and things week after week. We don't do that to make ourselves feel good. It's part of the war. You take the love of God and you break it right into the darkness, wherever you find the darkness. If people are hungry, you feed them. If they're, if they're oppressed, you pray for them. If they're, you got it? We just carry the light of God right into the darkness. We're at war. Worship is a form of warfare. Man, you just drive back that oppression. You'll find it just transforms us as the enemy's work is driven back, as, as the presence of God comes powerfully, preaching and teaching, obeying Christ's commands. Every time we obey Christ's commands, we beat the devil. I have seen it so many times when, when people refuse to be offended and they will sit down with one another and walk in the light and be reconciled. Understanding what they're doing, I've thought to myself, I've, I've walked away from some of these meetings and I'll say, Today we just beat the devil. He had a plan to divide us, he had a plan to, to bring his, his, his insidiousness into, into this church or this family or this relationship. And because we chose to obey our Lord, we just beat him. We just beat him. And not only did we eliminate the offense, we probably went away stronger and more unified than ever before. And unity is a dangerous weapon against the kingdom of darkness. 2 Samuel 23. I want to show you what real soldiers, brave soldiers look like. 
And these are, these are literal soldiers, but I believe that you and I are to be spiritual soldiers for Jesus Christ with attitudes like these mighty men of David. David recognized the bravest of his soldiers, men who did not, in the words of Revelation, did not love their life even unto death. These were soldiers who pursued the enemy and refused to quit fighting until the battle was won. Now the son of David still looks for men and women who will fight his battle with his weapons with this kind of bravery. Chapter 23 of 2 Samuel. I'm going to just start at verse 8. I won't read all of those names, but you notice the last line that this one man, Joshebesh, oh boy, Bashebeth, slay killed 800 of the enemy at one time. Wow, what a soldier. Verse 9, we have a guy who is probably not that bright, but he's really brave. He is, he is Eliezer, the son of Dodo. <laughs> I don't know what Dodo meant in Hebrew, but I know what it means in English. But No, anyway. But he's a brave guy. You know, come on. And uh, it says, he was one of the three mighty men with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there, so three of them, defied the Philistines, were gathered there to battle, and the men of Israel had withdrawn. In other words, three of them standing there, everybody chickened and ran. And these three are facing the army. And what did they do? And he arose, this Eliezer, arose and struck the Philistines until his hand was weary and clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And the people returned after him only to strip the slain. In other words, no one came to help him until he'd won. And they then came to loot the bodies. Thanks, guys. <laughs> this, this soldier, this warrior, stood his ground and swung the sword. And you know you can grip a thing so hard that you, after a while your hand won't open up. He couldn't let go. In total exhaustion... He couldn't even open his hand. He had fought. David honored these, this kind of soldier. The son of David still honors this kind of soldier. And after him was Shema. Shema means here. Shema Israel. Hero Israel. Shema, the son of uh, etc. And the, the Philistines were gathered into a troop where there was a plot of ground full of lentils. Lentils are those little beans. My wife makes lentils stew. I like it. And the people fled from the Philistines. So here we go. This poor guy standing there in this bean field. And everybody left him. And he took his stand in the midst of the plot. And defended it. And struck the Philistines. And the Lord brought about a great victory. You've been given a plot to stand in. You've been given an assignment. You've been put in a place in families and in workplaces and where he, in, in communities. He's put you in a bean field. And often you'll find that everyone else has fled. Jesus Christ is looking for soldiers who won't run. Who love not their life unto death. Who will stand and serve him. And swing the sword. And what we're not doing is cutting people up. What we're doing is healing. Delivering. Saving and rescuing. Our sword saves. But it says our work is more important. 
than, than the work with that physical sword. And we have to have a heart of a soldier, a heart of a brave warrior. This is a battle we're in. It's not a train ride. And we've got to wake up. Our generation needs us desperately. One, one more. There's a, there's a wonderful story here of three men who, who got David a drink from a well in Bethlehem at the risk of their lives again. But then verse 18. No, two more. Abishai, the brother of Joab. Now this is going to be one of David's nephews. The son of Zariah was a chief of the 30. And he swung his spear against 300 and killed them. My goodness. With his spear. And he, he was most honored of the 30. Then go down to verse 20. And then Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada. The son of a valiant man. Who had done mighty deeds. Killed the two sons of Ariel of Moab. Must have been some, a leader or a king. He also went down and killed a lion. In the middle of a pit on a snowy day. This is, these, these are gutsy. Brave. Courageous people. Who will put their lives on the line. And he killed an Egyptian. An impressive man. And the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but he went down to him with a club and snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and he killed him with his own spear. David recognized the bravest of his soldiers, men who did not love their lives unto death. These were soldiers who pursued the enemy and refused to quit fighting until the battle was won. The son of David still looks for men and women who will fight his battles with his weapons, with this kind of bravery. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.